Matthew chapter 1, 16 through, excuse me, Mark. I say Matthew every time? Yeah. No one corrected me. Alright, Mark chapter 1, 16 through 20. Let's pray and then we'll read this. Our Father, we thank You that You truly are our God and we thank You that we are Your true children by virtue of what Christ has done for us. And so we come to You now. We pray that You would open up Your Scriptures to us. We pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit that You would give us grace not to just hear Your Word but to be doers of it. We thank You for Christ. We thank You for the disciples that Christ called. We thank You that Your church, as we'll see here, has always been about Your business And we pray that you would give us grace to do the same as weak and as fallible and as mistake prone as we are. We thank you that this work of of your kingdom is, is, is done by you ultimately. And you give us the strength, Lord. So thank you. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. All right, chapter 1, 16 through 20. Verse 16, as he was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat, mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And so, remember last week in verse 15, we were talking about Christ comes preaching. Verse 14, He comes preaching the gospel of God. Verse 15, the gospel that He's preaching, He's saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And so this is kind of the outworkings of what we've just seen Him preach. Okay, so He's telling us what the message of the gospel is when He goes out. And now we're actually seeing it in action. And uh, in verse 16, so He's going along by the Sea of Galilee. What's amazing about this is when He goes to the Sea of Galilee, we talked a little about last week how He went back north into Galilee. You know, it's an amazing thing because Christ, there's no doubt that He's intentional about seeking out disciples. But notice He does not go to Jerusalem and pick disciples from, uh, from the Sanhedrin or from the, the, the Pharisees or from the Sadducees. Um, those would have been the intellectuals of the day in the Sanhedrin. People like Paul, who are sitting at the feet of Gamaliel right now. He intentionally avoids that area. He goes north. And notice also this. In verse uh, 15, when he says the kingdom of God is at hand, you would expect, from a worldly perspective, you would expect a lot of pomp, a lot of trumpets, a lot of noise, a lot of clash, and a lot of glitter whenever Christ begins this kingdom of God. Whenever the kingdom of God comes... From a worldly perspective, we would expect something just cataclysmic, enormous. But what you really have is you have Christ in an unnoticed part of the world going to fishermen who nobody knows about. Nobody knows these guys. They're out they're fishing, right? They're just out doing their thing. And Christ intentionally goes to this kind of this kind of backwoods area for the purpose of calling ministers, well, eventual ministers, to do the work of the kingdom of God. Um, and so what you're going to see here is this. Okay, verse 16. First of all, the Sea of Galilee, If, if I don't know if anyone's seen pictures of it. I actually Google Earth it the other day when I was looking at this. But it's a, uh, even back then, so it's 12 miles long. It's, it's six miles across. It was a huge fishing industry. There were 12 ports in those days. There was a, a variety of fish. Josephus, the historian, he talks about how the Sea of Galilee was, uh, it, it has sweet water, um, which, by the way, it's not a sea. 
It's actually a lake. So it comes, it comes across here as sea, but it's actually a lake. It's a fresh body lake. And so it's a very active situation. There's a lot of people in and out. People are, are, it's a, there's a lot of bustle. There's a lot of noise as far as all the work that's being done on these seas or on the sea. Okay, so that's where, that's where Christ is. Um, but notice it says, as he was going along, he comes across a couple folks here, uh, Simon and Andrew. So he's going along, he sees Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, and they're casting a net in the sea. Now, who is Simon and Andrew? Simon is Simon Peter. And Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. Um, and I, I always kind of like to, to consider these guys when they're first seen and then think about what happens to them later on in their life, right? So they're just out fishing. They're just out doing their thing. It's just an ordinary day. They woke up that morning. They, they put their boots on. They, they dressed, you know, just like any other ordinary day. They have no idea that their lives are about to be turned upside down in a literal sense. I mean, Peter, in a sense, you know, when he dies, he says, I want to be crucified upside down because I'm not worthy to be crucified like my master. And so for the rest of their lives, beginning this day, their life, just like Christ's life, is going to be one of controversy, one of turmoil, and for them, one of frustration. Uh, because they, they, as we'll see, there's a lot of mistakes that they make. There's a lot of confusion. There's a lot of... Um, they, they are far from perfect. And so it's going to be a, a new world for them. And that, in a sense, should be the same. Anytime somebody's called out of darkness into light, uh, something similar happens. And we'll go into that in a, in a minute. But I also, I want to point, if you turn to John chapter 1, John chapter 1, we're actually going to see that, that uh, Simon Peter and Andrew were actually disciples of John the Baptist. And that's when they first encountered Christ. So John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42... So this is this is Christ's first active ministry here when he's first going out. Verse 35, again the next day John was standing, John the Baptist, he was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying. And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are, the, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. So if you go back and you're saying, Okay, so where on the time spectrum are we right now? So somewhere along the way, what happened was, is that even though they encountered Christ, they must have gone back to Galilee and just resumed their ordinary lives. And so when Christ comes upon the scene, it's not to say this is the first time they've encountered Christ. They kind of know some of his background. They know that, that John the Baptist has already proclaimed him to be the Messiah in a sense. But we don't see any true allegiance as far as following him goes until Christ himself comes and tells them very specifically. Look what he says um, in verse 17. And Jesus said to them, follow me, which is an imperative, which is a command. Follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Okay, um, now think about what he's saying here. He's not saying, follow me because you are fishers of men. Follow me because you want to be fishers of men. He says, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. This is encouraging because anytime um, there was a, a guy that used to mentor me and he would say it this way, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. <clears throat> nice Southern Baptist lingo right there, right? 
But that's true. Think about it. He doesn't call those who are mighty, those who are gifted, those who have it all figured out. He goes and calls those who are the opposite of that, and along the way, He begins to equip them. And you know who gets greater glory for that, right? God does. Right? Why would God go and, you know, it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, I remember who uh, Kanye West, wasn't it, when he looked like he was converted and then he goes on Joel Osteen and he's talking about how God needed him and God's like, you know, you're the best artist, Kanye, and I want you because you're the best. And, and I'm thinking, listen, that is not typical of how usually, now there are exceptions, but that's typically not how God calls people. He usually calls the weak things of the world. Those who are not wise according to the world. So that they go out and confound the wise. They go out and confound the world. So these men, they're fishing. Christ comes. He says, he's, he essentially, follow me there. Is essentially, come on. Let's go, guys. It's time. Okay. Um, leave all other ties, in other words. So he's saying very clearly here that Christ is the one. Notice the emphasis is on, is on I. See, when you and I are called from whatever employment, whatever we're doing in life, we'll talk about this in a minute as far as um, whether or not leaving their fishing nets behind meant that, you know, there's no more work here. There's no more fishing. There's no more house there. And we'll see this in a minute. But the point here is this, okay? When God calls us, we trust Him. God is the, God is the agent behind our development, our growth, our sanctification. And certainly, one of the ways that He does that in our lives, how does God sanctify us? Well, uh, one of the primary ways is that he uses what's going on in our lives. So a lot of times, you know, and I would, I would, I would offer here, you know, certain difficult circumstances. We don't grow very much spiritually when everything's going our way. We have to be honest. We kind of, at least for me, anyways, I get spoiled. I kind of get, um, I just get lazy. I guess spiritually, I get sluggish, right? But when things are not going our way, when when we're tried, when we're in, in, in the midst of whatever thing is going on in our life. Aren't we more prone to go to the only one who we know to go to? It's kind of like when Christ in John chapter 6, he's making, it, he's making it very clear, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't be my disciples. And the disciples are like, dude, this is, this is hard. I'm out of here. And they leave. And Christ turns to his disciples and says, don't you guys want to go with them? He's, he's almost saying where their heart is, you know, testing them. And they say, Christ, where else would we go? You have the words of eternal life. And there are times in our lives, right, when things are going crazy and everything seems to be collapsing, and we look around and we say the only place where we can go is Christ. Why? Because where else are we going to go? There's nothing else out there. And so what's going on here is when he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. I will make you, I, Christ, am going to make you become fishers of men. That's why we can follow him. Because if it was up to us, we would look at this and say, you know, when Christ calls us to follow him, we're like, man, I can't do it. Exactly right. You can't do it. I can't do it. Nobody can do it. The only way that this is going to work is if Christ or God comes in and says, I'm going to do this through you. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And so if you go and I'll, you know, the very last thing that Christ tells the disciples in Matthew 28, he says this, he says, uh, if you, it's usually if you just flip one page to your left, look at Matthew 28, verse 16. But the 11 disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had designated. This is the great commission. Go to the very end of that verse 20. He's, he says, go into all the nations, etc., teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
Because remember, I mean, you can think about these disciples, right? So, so here they are, the very first thing that happens to them in their life as Christians, as far as following Christ, is Christ comes and says, I will make you become fishers of men. And then what you have now is you have Christ saying, okay, guys, I'm out of here. You say, wait a minute. You're telling us to go into all the world, disciple the nations, and you're leaving. He says, I'm not leaving, right? He says, I'm with you. I'm still with you. And in a minute, we'll see that they go on to do greater works, as Christ told us, than even Christ himself did. Because Christ is with them. Christ is working through them. So this is the, this is the beginning when Christ comes and he gives them this promise, follow me and I will, I will make you become fishers of men. Um, I, I want to look also... If, if well, Let's look at their reaction. Verse, verse 18, immediately they left their nets and they followed him. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. So if you turn with me to 1 Kings, all right, 1 Kings 19 in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 19. And we've seen a lot of this as far as Elijah, um, Moses in the wilderness. We've seen a lot of these themes already in, in the Gospel of Mark here. But check this out. So... I want to give you the contrast between these disciples' reaction. Christ comes, says, follow me. They drop their nets, boom, they follow him. Okay, now look what happens. Elijah is a prophet, and he goes to Elisha. Okay, so this is 1 Kings 19, verse 19. Elijah departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, while he was plowing with 12 pairs of oxen before him. And he was with the twelfth. And Elijah passed over to him and threw his mantle on him. He left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Please let me kiss my father and my mother, then I will follow you. And Elijah, and he said, he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? So he returned from following him and took the pair of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the implements of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and followed Elijah and ministered to him. Now you might be saying, eh, that's not that big of a deal. I mean, what's the point here? But if you remember what Christ does in, um, this is Mark chapter 9. So this is one instance where he says, hey, come and follow me. They drop their nets and they follow him. In Mark chapter 9, excuse me, might be, uh, I think it's Matthew 9. Okay, Luke chapter 9, excuse me. Luke chapter 9. All right, verse 57. Luke chapter 9, verse 57. Okay, so it's Christ, the disciples, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. In other words, he's warning him, hey, if you come with me, you're not going to have anywhere. It's it's not easy. You're not going to have a pillow at night, right? Verse 59, and he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. Another also said, I will follow you, Lord. But first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. And so what you have is a very explicit contrast here between 
this episode and what happens with Elijah and Elisha. And what, what Mark and what uh, Mark with, with the scene that we're looking at and what Luke is telling us is that what Christ came to do, his mission is more urgent. It requires, it, it's, 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 hey, we, we have to do this now. Why? Because in part what we have just seen John the Baptist preaching. Remember the urgency of John the Baptist saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Christ comes, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. What is he saying? The eschatological, the end time judgment of God is at hand. So there's no more time to play around. There's no more time to mess around. We don't even have time to go and eat a meal before we get out there. And he's not saying it. It's not to be taken literally, I would say, as far as, hey, when you follow Christ, you know, you can't go eat or something. But it's to say in our in our mindset, when it comes to how we approach this mission, we have to be urgent. It requires it's I mean, we're in a warfare. That's what it, we're called to service. And so we're called on a mission here. That's what's happening with, with, uh, with these disciples here. They immediately, and there's no doubt that Mark is using that word for, for a reference here, to say this is their response. Christ says, hey, follow me. It's not, a, it's not an option, right? It's a command. Hey, follow me. They drop their nets. Boom, they follow him. Verse 19, going on a little farther. And by the way, real fast, you know what's neat about this? Is that Mark, remember where he got most of his information about the gospel? It's from Peter. So Peter must have no doubt told Mark about this first scene when they're out fishing and the first time Christ encounters and he calls them out. So it's kind of neat, right? A um, little backstory there. So uh, verse 19, going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. This is a different James than the one who wrote the book of James, the one that Eric went through. This is the James who in Acts, he was one of the first martyrs after Stephen. He's going to lose his head. Um, for being a Christian ultimately. And, and John, his brother, John's the one who, of course, wrote the Gospel of John, Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Uh, he's a pillar in Jerusalem. You'll see Paul say that. So, so, uh, and here they are, you know, at this time, they're, they're just runts out there throwing their, you know, fishing and, and, and doing their thing. But going on a little farther, it says, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And I want to I correct one uh, misunderstanding that you hear a lot, but, but the more I look into this and, and, and kind of read through some of this, um, we have a concept of Peter and James here and, and, and Simon and these guys, or excuse me, Andrew and these guys, is kind of, um, we have a mindset, usually it's kind of depicted as like fishermen were just kind of like idiots. You know, they were just kind of, just, just, they didn't know what they were doing, just these backwoods laborers. I mean, they didn't, they were illiterate and everything else. The more you, I'm convinced it was not that way at all. Because number one, first of all, think about how busy the Sea of Galilee was. These men, especially here, you have Zebedee who has a boat. He has hired servants, right? So they're having to, they're having to interact. They're having to inter- engage with people. I think they're more akin to uh, like a businessman, to be honest, as far as their calling, as far as what they were doing. They were just out there, you know, like in their retirement, just throwing the, throwing the, the fishing line in. I mean, this is, a, this is an active job, an active employment. And by the way, having been on numerous college campuses and also having by God's grace worked at a, at a like a blue collar sheet metal shop you, you find a lot more wisdom in these blue collar trays than you do on most college campuses these days you know so it's just to say that this cliche it's the same thing with us you know because you're like oh man it's a it's a plumber or it's a it's a a mechanic you know so I mean these guys weren't like intellectuals yeah but 
in general, right, there's a lot more common sense in these blue-collar trades. And so I'm saying this because I, I just think it's a, it's a misunderstanding of Peter and Andrew and James and John to say, oh, these guys were just kind of idiots. You know, it's not quite. But at the same time, they certainly were not equipped like no one else, none of us are, right, to go out with the gospel and to disciple the nations. Um, so he goes over here. Now, also kind of neat is what they would do is uh, with... So, so you notice they have a boat. So there was two ways to fish, I guess. You could fish from the boat. Now, James, um, Simon, excuse me, Simon, Peter, and Andrew were not in a boat. And what they would do is supposedly they had this big 20-foot net and uh, 20 foot wide and, and it was circular and they had weights on the bottom of this net and I guess you could go like you could, you could spin it in such a way where it'd start going really fast and then you, you toss the net over the school of fish and the weights would carry the net to the bottom and then you'd walk out there and you'd, you'd trap the weights you'd trap the fish by, by closing the weights down and then bring the fish to the shore and, uh, and so that was different here they would do something similar but they were in a boat and so they were probably obviously in deeper water um, anyway so he goes to them notice though this now this is the only time that Zebedee is, is mentioned as far as uh, you see him here so that's the father of James and John now think about from the father's perspective you got to think about this I mean if your children and let's, we don't know if Zebedee was saved or not right? I don't know if he followed Christ or not but here's the thing you're out here and you're just going about just like these other guys, um, Andrew and and, um, and Simon Peter, just like James and John, you put your boots on, you put your clothes on, you're just doing something you've always done. You know, you don't you don't have any intention of life changing. Zebedee has no intention of everything being turned upside down, right? If for him too. And here comes Jesus, and Jesus says, "Hey, follow me." And they don't say, "Hey, Jesus, can we you know like go eat with our dad first or whatnot?" It says immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him, to follow Christ. When, when people become converted, it, it turns everyone's life upside down in a sense. It affects everybody. If it's right, because that's how it should. In a sense, so Christ, when he says, I came not to bring peace on earth, but a sword. We're not to look at that as in the same way as like, like Muhammad calls for war in the Quran, right? It's to say that when somebody's converted, there's going to be conflict now. There's going to be controversy. Because you're either for Christ or against Christ. And so everything is turned upside down. Life is turned upside down. Everyone around us. Now, it's not to say in a negative sense, in, in, in certainly in all cases, right? Sometimes it's for the good. But here you have, if you imagine Zebedee, Zebedee's watching his kids go away. And he's like, oh, man, what if, I mean, we don't know. You don't want to go too far into this. But you're like, what, what's going on here, right? But what they're doing is they recognize, again, the urgency and the priority of what Christ is and of who Christ is. As opposed to anything else. So the thing they love most, the thing they desire most, when it comes even to the family, if there's ever a time, and this is what you get like in Luke 14, when Christ says, unless a man hates his own brother, hates his own mother, hates his own father. And if you think I'm I'm paraphrasing, look what he says. This is Luke 14. Verse 25, he says, Now large crowds were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now you have to ask yourself here, this is, this is the Christ who tells us to love even our enemies. 
This is the Christ who gets onto the Pharisees because they're, they're, they're requiring children to do certain things that dishonor their parents. So we're not seeing, so when, you, when you're interpreting Scripture with Scripture, what you come away with Christ saying here is He's saying that in comparison to everything else in our life, if it's not like hatred, in comparison to the love that we have for Christ, are we truly disciples? So in other words, if anything comes in between me and Christ, that thing has to go. There has to be a change there. That's what's going on here. And and James and John are looking at this by God's grace. And we know know who it is, right, who's, who's doing this. If you go to Matthew chapter 11, I mean, think about what it would take if you're out there and Christ comes. Hey, follow me. And you're like, all right, I'm out. I'm doing it, right? We all come to that strength. We all come to that point. Everyone who's been converted has come to that point where we say, "You know what? This is this is the real, this is truth." I'm reading what I'm learning. Christ, this is the truth. Like we read this morning, He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. I'm out. I'm following Him. I'm not doing the things I used to do. I'm going a new way now. Look what He says in, in Matthew 11. This is a very, I think, underestimated and, and underread verse here. Chapter 11, verse 25. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal Him. And then, of course, he says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But does everyone go to him? No. Christ can go to certain people and say, hey, come follow me. And they're like, no, I don't think so. I'd rather stay in the boat and fish. I'd rather stay over here. Kind of like what we saw, you know, and the guy's like, hey, I want to go bury. That's what Christ meant when he says, hey, I want to go bury my dad. It's not to say you can't bury your dad if you're a Christian. What's he saying there? The priority was skewed for these men. It was a different priority. They said, no, these these worldly things have to come first. And he's saying, no. When when, When it comes to being a disciple of Christ, everything changes. And the good news for us is that if you think this was easy for them, of course it wasn't. And if you think they've already got it just in one swoop, we know that's not the case. Remember, Peter's... The one who, of course, will later deny him, right? So they're going to make mistakes. They're going to mess up. They're going to fumble every single day. And yet Christ is continuously working with them and being with them and helping them and being patient with them, just like He is with us. So Christ opens our eyes to follow Him. Christ gives us the grace to come after Him, to follow Him. And as we go and we stumble and we mess up and we're slipping and slide and everything's ugly, three steps backwards, one step forwards, we're thinking, is there any progress? Yes. If you've truly been saved, yes, Christ is going to bring you through. He's working in you. He's working in us right now. And so immediately he calls them. They leave their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants. And they go. They went away and followed him. So I want to look at three aspects of this. Number one, I've touched on it a little bit, but Jesus is the subject of the call. He's the author of it. Um, And these days, this is different than what you would have most rabbis doing. So, So 
And in this, in this era, what would happen is, kind of like today, if I want to go to a college, if I want to learn, if I want to train under somebody, I have to seek him out. I've got to fill out applications, whatever that looks like. I've got to maybe give him money, everything else, right? That's the same way. If I wanted to be a student at the Sanhedrin back in those days, I'd have to go to Jerusalem. I'd have to seek out a teacher. Think of Gamaliel. Paul would have had to seek Gamaliel out, sit at his feet. But he would have had to be the author. He would have had to been the agent that starts that process. This is the reverse. Christ comes to us. And it's also the reverse, speaking of how are people saved, right? We as Christ's disciples, that's, think about what it is to be a fisher of men, by the way. We're actively engaged in going out just like fishermen. Uh, to be a fisherman, even in these days, it was not an easy life. It was a hard life. It was a difficult task. The fish are stubborn. The fish don't always come. We are called to go out, not wait for people to come to us, right? We're called to go to them. Why? Because Christ, our master, our, he's our example. He goes out to the world. He goes out to call people. And now he says, I'm going to make you become fishers of men so that you too can go out and do this. And... Um, What's great is if you go to the end of Mark, go to chapter 16, verse 7. Go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. This is actually, this is after, of course, uh, Christ has been raised from the dead. There, there you will see him just as he told you. They went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, after he had risen early on the first day of the week, he had appeared. Now, this is Christ. He's appearing to people. Um, go down, actually, to um, verse 14. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at the table, and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those, those who had seen him after he had risen. Now, this is amazing, is it not? I mean, think about it. This is the Christ who goes to Peter, who goes to Paul, uh, excuse me, who goes to James, who goes to Simon, who goes to, who am I missing? <laughs> There's four of them. And he goes to them and he says, come after me, follow me. And they follow him. But whenever he's crucified, then they flee, right? They, they run for the hills. They're afraid of the Romans. They're afraid of dying. They're afraid of everybody. And so they're hiding. And then when Christ is raised from the dead, he comes and he reproaches them. But here's the point, okay? What's encouraging about this is, no, is two things, first of all. We as Christians still struggle like they do, do we not? We have faith we believe in Christ, but then in certain circumstances, we start to waver, we start to wonder, we start to worry, we start to fear. That's what they're doing here. But when Christ comes up in verse 15, and He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. He who has believed and has been baptized shall be saved, but he who has disbelieved shall be condemned. And there's talking about the signs that they'll do, and they'll cast out demons. Now this is especially, specifically for these first century guys. They will speak with new tongues. They will pick up new uh, serpents. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will hands on the sick, and, and they will recover. And what He's saying is that they are going to go out and continue the work that Christ began. The ministry that He began, they are going to, in a sense, carry it on. And when you look at what's going on, and again, 
like I mentioned you know, previous times before, we are living testimonies to the reality that when Christ says, I will make you become fishers of men, that's exactly what He has done. He did it for those four. These, they, think about what's going on. That's the seed of the early church right there. That's the nucleus that's already being formed. They're out fishing. Christ says, hey, follow me. They start to follow Him. That is the, the, those are the seeds of this church right here. Of every Christian who's in the world today, that's where it begins. Because these four go out and they do the same thing. And so if you think about even just this group right here, and we're trying, we're looking, say, Clovis, Portalis, Sudan, Fort Sumner, all these places, right? And you're like, man, this is plenty of this is plenty of people to do the work that God has called us to do. We I mean we you know it's almost like Gideon. You know, we're Gideon, he's he's God's like, you know, 3,000 is way too many, Gideon. you gotta, you got to cut that number down. They're going up against like 10,000 guys. And, and, and God's like, Gideon, your army's way too big. And Gideon's like, we got 3,000 versus 10,000. God says, no, that's, that's too many. So they go down to 300. That's always been the pattern. So here Christ is coming. He's saying the kingdom of God is at hand. The entire universe is about to be overturned for the things of God. God is going to come in. God is going to claim the entire universe for him. And it's going to start with individuals who even after Christ was raised from the dead, Christ has to go and rebuke them for their hardness of heart and for their unbelief. And yet these are the people that God's going to use to overturn the world, to turn the world upside down. Yes, exactly right. Why? Because in the end, we glorify God and not man. If these guys were sufficient, if they were, if they were equipped, if they were, again, if they had all the tools and all the packages, we'd say, yeah, that was, I mean, these guys really did a great job. But no, we look at that and we say, man, these guys were not the cream of the crop. And yet, look what we have. Look at the result. Why? Because Christ says, I am with you to the end of the ages. And He's with us today. And so that's number one. Jesus is the subject of the call. He's the author of the call. Number two, Jesus fulfills the call. He really does it. I hit on that. So um, number three, the call. When I say call, what is the call? It's to advance God's kingdom. It's to advance the glory of God. Um, and, and, and again, let me, let me end with this. If, if you feel weak and incompetent and incapable and you're not able to do this, that's exactly where you have to be. If you feel sufficient, if you feel smart enough, you know, um, a lot of times like seminary and things like that, uh, conferences and, and books, you know, if you look at these things and you're like, I feel sufficient, I feel equipped because I've been to seminary, I've read these books, I've watched these YouTube videos and all these things, you're not looking at it in the right way because you're not, you're not capable. Seminary doesn't make anyone capable. Right? It's not downplaying seminary, by all means. It's a useful thing. The conferences and the books. If I'm looking at these things and saying, okay, now that I've read all of these things, I no longer have to depend on God. And what happens, regardless of what it is, the temptation creeps in, even if we're unaware of it, to start considering ourselves to be the results and, 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 and the power behind what, what's going to happen, right? So we start looking at ourselves and we say, well, it's up to us. It's up to me. And that drives it. So in other words, seminary, all these things, books, sermons, those, these are means of grace to learn more about God and to better equip us. But it cannot replace whoever we are. It cannot replace the fact that the smarter we become, quote-unquote, 
the more prone we are to be less dependent on God. And when we do that, we lose the power. We're sapped. And so what these guys had that we need to have is the ability to look reality in the face and say, man, we are not capable of doing this. Advancing the kingdom of God, we can't do this. That's where we have to be. Because once we realize we can't do this, we go to the only one who can do this is Christ. And Christ gives us the power to do it. And so the call is to advance the kingdom of God, but God uses means. God uses people. Could God have technically, I guess, opened everybody's eyes and just made everyone believers? Perhaps, right? Perhaps. But that's not God's way. Paul tells us, how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so you might not be a preacher, you might not be a minister, but you are called to be a disciple, right? We're called to be disciples and to do what Christ has called these men to do, which is to be fishers of men, to go out and fish for men in light of still the judgment to come. The second they die, it's judgment. And so the kingdom of God is both a blessing and a curse. The coming of God, the day of the Lord, is both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing for those who love God. It's a curse for those who don't love God. And so it's still urgent. It's just as urgent. And so by God's grace, because we're so weak and unqualified, we can do this. Right? We can advance the kingdom of God in Clovis. I mean, seriously. You know, Christ plants a stake in the ground of the city. Christ owns Clovis, New Mexico. He's the king of Clovis, New Mexico. He's the lord of Clovis, New Mexico. Now it's our job to go and tell people that. And call them to believe in this Christ who reigns over the entire universe. And again, we can do it because of Christ, right? He is with us even to the end of the age. So let's pray and then we'll we'll come to to the table here. Father, we thank You for this, this Scripture. Lord, thank You for reminding us that You are not only the Savior, but You're the one who equips us to go out and to make disciples. You're the one who equips us to be, to be followers, that You give us grace. Uh, just like You gave these disciples, You give us grace as well to, to, to not lose heart and to continue the work that You've given us to do. We thank You, Lord, that, that You have called us to this, this purpose in life, that You've given us a purpose to go forth and to to be ambassadors and to be heralds and ministers and 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 even for for those who aren't ministers you've called us to be to be people who go and speak Christ unto others and talk about Christ and teach others about Christ lord thank you for giving every one of us a call and a purpose and not just a call and a purpose but you're the one who gives us the power to fulfill that to see that come about so lord we praise you today We praise You. We know that in ourselves we have nothing to boast about. So thank You for doing this work of grace in us. And we pray that You would help us now to go and to be fishers of men. That You would give us a heart and a a hunger to see men rescued from from the sea of destruction. Thank You for being a good God. And we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.